almost at least. All done but the final now, so essentially. Uh, we do have a couple things, two things due today. The last homework assignment is due today. Turn it in after class or submit it in the Dropbox on D2L by 6 o'clock tomorrow. I should have that graded by Monday along with any of the extra credit. If you've done any of the extra credit assignments or if you've turned in anything late, they'll probably be done by Monday as well. Everything else is updated, should be updated as of now. I've, all labs have been graded, all solar observations, everything that was submitted by Wednesday has been updated and graded. Yeah? Yeah, you can leave it in my mailbox as well. I'll be here to early afternoon. That, that counts just as well. Yeah? In regards to homework, I just want to apologize now because I am right-handed, but I write like I'm left-handed. Okay. So I apologize for the headaches. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then we also have the quiz. Last quiz in class today. I've already told you what's exactly what's on it, so you're ready to write down. I, I give you them. You don't have to memorize them either, so they're all on there. You just got to put them. I put them in alphabetical order. You got to put them in distance order. So all, you don't have to sit there and memorize all of them, but all you got to do is start with the sun. Sun is number one when I give that to you. I have people that start and go Mercury and zip their way down and then realize when they get to sun, wait a second, where I have to put the sun in here. So sun is number one. I'll even give you that and then you work your way down through it. So we'll do that after, after lecture and probably before, before lab today. And then the iTunes quiz, I, if, I think I changed that from last time. Originally I had it available today. I spent the rest of this morning making sure all of the solar observations were finished graded. So I do have all of those done and I'll give you those back later. So that means I don't have the iTunes quiz completely done yet and I will have that done later today. So it will actually be available later today probably sometime if you want to get it out of the way. And if not, it will be available through the final that you can take that. And then that's it. We're down to the final exam next week here, uh, Wednesday from 9 to 11. And as I promised, I did make up a little sheet here that sort of breaks, it, breaks down just the questions, not the topics. You know what topics are essentially are going to be on it. Um, I hope, but there's, there's three, three parts to the final. It's slightly, each of, the, each of the two main parts is slightly longer than a regular exam. Um, a couple more questions, not, no, certainly not double it even though it's worth double the points as the final exam. So each of them has a little bit more to it. A couple more questions, it's one more essay, but the nice thing is I give you eight essays and you only got to pick five of them instead of six and you choose four. So you got a little bit more flexibility in which ones you pick. And there's a couple more true-false, a couple more multiple choice, and a couple, maybe another fill, extra fill-in or two. But it's broken into two parts. Part one will be material from the beginning from the previous exams. So that's where you want to look at your prior exams. So those are questions for the most part will come right from the other exams. So I will copy them off. I don't say I won't clarify something if I thought something might have had a little bit of a confusion in, in the previous. I might reword something to clarify it, but essentially that material is right from those exams. So if you study those four exams, that's what's part one. The essays will come pretty much again. Again, I don't say I won't clarify something a little bit if I need to, but essentially you'll be getting those, you'll see similar questions again. So you don't need to go back and study your old notes. You don't need to go back and study your old um, the old lectures or anything else, you don't need to go back to that. If you study those four exams, make sure you know all the right answers to them. That's the material you're going to see for half of the exam. That's 100 points. So that's usually, usually people do real well on that one. The second part, of course, that's going to be the new material. That's chapters 16, 17, and 18. That were the last three that we've covered. And that will be similar to the previous exams, but I've got it set up for the final. It's set up the same style. It's going to have 12 true-false, 16 multiple choice, 8 fill-ins, and 8 essays. Again, you choose uh, five, 5 of those to answer. And then part 3 is an extra credit. I'm not, still not sure exactly what I'm doing for you guys. That part is not, not made up yet. I've done various random things uh, over the years of extra credit. So there'll be some kind of questions. They may be uh, Maybe base something on the book, maybe something completely different. I've done, I've done completely random things at times, so you never know what to, expect, what to expect on that. It's extra credit. If you're not sure anything, of course, guessing will, can't, can't hurt you on that. You do have the full two hours to complete the exam, so if you need to stick around till 11, you can. Generally, I find that most people are done within an hour to an hour and a half. So you know, it's not going to be a 10-minute exam, but... You should, be, you, should you should be done a little bit earlier if you, if you need to. If you need the time, of course, um, there. Uh, in terms of grading, 
I will have final grades for you Thursday morning. So I will grade these Wednesday afternoon. The only thing that we'll be waiting for is if you decided not to take the iTunes quiz or wait until the last minute to take the iTunes quiz. If you've taken the iTunes quiz, you probably know your grade Thursday afternoon. Because once I grade these, I'll put them in. If your iTunes quiz is done, it'll be in there. Otherwise, the iTunes quiz probably won't make much of a difference unless you're right at the edge. You know, if you're within a few a fraction of a fraction, few points of the next higher grade, that's when it can make it will make a difference. You know, if, if you end up with a 85 after the final, for example, iTunes quiz isn't going to bring you to a 90, and not doing it's not going to bring you down to you know 79. So there is a point where it won't make any difference for you either. But again, can't hurt you because it does drop a previous previous quiz, as does the one today. So any questions on that before we? We're all ready then. Okay. Alrighty. Well, let's go ahead and start with our picture of the day then for today. And that is the Milky Way over Moon Valley. And this is an image taken down in Chile. You can tell it's south of the equator because we can see the two Magellanic clouds over here. Two satellite galaxies of our Milky Way orbit around it much as the planets and other objects in our solar system orbit around the sun. There is our Milky Way, that's our galaxy, as seen from inside. And again, you see a lot of the things we've talked about over the semester. We see the different dust clouds blocking out a lot of the light. The you know, center of our galaxy is getting close to in here, and it's not incredibly bright. It should be. If there was no dust, that would be the brightest part of the sky. That would be incredibly bright, because there is so much uh, material there. But there's also enough dust that it blocks out all of that light and we don't really get to see it. If this were, if we lived in an elliptical galaxy, for example, you'd be able to see a much brighter area towards the core. There'd be a lot more stars there and you'd see a lot more stars. Um, again, the two Magellanic clouds, large and small Magellanic clouds, two little small satellite galaxies. Those are three of the four galaxies in this image. There's actually one more that you can see. Oh, I've got to scroll. This is a panoramic view that was done, so I've got to scroll all the way over to the other side. And you see another galaxy way over here. That's another that galaxy that's actually visible to the naked eye. If you've got a real dark sight and you know exactly where to look, it's not easy to see. That's Andromeda. That's the Andromeda galaxy. Large spiral galaxy, even bigger than our own Milky Way, and about two, two and a half million light years away. So if it were as close as the Magellanic Clouds, it would fill the sky. Eventually it will get there. We talked about how that's getting closer and closer to us, that we're uh, you know, on a collision course with Andromeda. At some point, billions of years from now, you know, not something we'll see in our lifetimes, but billions of years from now, it will actually, you know, it will actually fill the sky as that collision begins. And again, like a collision we talked about between galaxies, it doesn't happen instantaneously. It takes a long, long time for those two galaxies to collide. But you would, if you could come back and look at this, you know, come back and look every billion years or so, and then every hundred million years, you'd see Andromeda slowly getting larger and larger in the sky. Nothing that we'll ever notice changes of in our lifetime. But one image there and Four of the galaxies, probably the four galaxies that you can see with the naked eye, all taken in one image, image here. Our Milky Way, the two Magellanic Clouds, and then the Andromeda Galaxy. And that's the last picture that will be covered for the iTunes quiz. So I won't go anything else. I'll have that quiz up later today. That'll be the last of the pictures that is covered on that. Although I'll probably show you whatever comes up on Wednesday. Any questions? All right, we're ready to go, or just get it over with, right? All right, we were here last time. We had started on chapter 18, and I'd shown you this slide on cosmic evolution, on getting from the Big Bang to us, essentially, in one image. And what I really talked about is we've covered a lot of this already. We talked about the Big Bang and how all the particles formed how the hydrogen and helium formed. We went through that last time. Uh, in the previous chapter, we talked about you know, the Big Bang forming hydrogen and helium, not being able to form everything, anything else. Then we talked about how galaxies evolved. Started out with very small dwarf galaxies that slowly merged together to form larger and larger galaxies. So we went through galactic evolution. We studied that in terms of talking about galaxies. We certainly talked about stars and how they went through their lives. 
So how did we form stars? What did they do as they went through their lives? And we even did a little bit on planets. We talked about planets and how planetary systems formed. That's about as far as we've gone on this yet. We're now going to pick up, and what I'm going to try to cover here today is rush through the rest of that. How do we get from that? We formed planets, now how do we get to an intelligent living civilization that we have here on Earth today? So we have to go through things like chemical evolution. How do we form the building blocks, the basic things that make us up? We have to go through biological evolution. How, does, how do we get the biology? How do we actually form living creatures? And then cultural evolution. You know, how do we change? As we form living creatures and intelligent ones, how do they change? And this becomes important if we want to communicate with them. We could have this nice civilization over on Alpha Centauri that is, you know, the planet of amoeba. You know, simple single-celled creatures. Well, we can send them all the signals we want and we're never going to get a response. Doesn't even have to be that far. They could also be a civilization there that's about 200 years behind us. We can send them all the radio signals we want. If someone had sent us radio signals that we received in the early 1800s, would we have been able to do anything about them? Would we even have known? We'd have had no clue. We didn't have the technology yet. So the cultural evolution is important if you want to communicate with them. Doesn't, if there's no cultural evolution that goes on, doesn't mean there's not life there. But there's no way to communicate with it if they don't use something similar to what we use in terms of radio communications. So what are we going to learn? Early on, let's look at the chemical evolution first. First of all, we don't really know very much about the first billion years of the Earth. We talked about how the Earth formed. Cloud of, ga cloud of gas and dust that formed the sun, the material that was left over formed the Earth. But the Earth was extremely hot and extremely volcanically active at the time. That means that nothing from that time really survives. So there aren't any rocks that formed when the Earth formed that are still here. They've all been melted and reprocessed out as new rocks. Any evidence that was there is gone. So any fossils that might have occurred, anything else about the Earth's information. We don't really know. What do we know? We think we th here's what we think we know. We think the Earth would have been like. It would have been very volcanically active. Would have been a lot hotter than it, was to it is today. So instead of just having few volcanoes scattered around, there would have been a lot more volcanoes. Part of redoing, reworking the surface. It would have had an atmosphere, but not like the atmosphere we have today. Right? We're used to oxygen, nitrogen, argon, uh, carbon dioxide, water vapor, a few other compounds. This would have had an atmosphere with hydrogen in it, some nitrogen, and a lot of carbon compounds. So a quite different atmosphere that we would have had today. We think this is what it would have occurred because these are the kind of gases that will come out of a volcano. As the volcano, all the gases that are trapped below the surface, they'll release things like hydrogen, nitrogen, uh, various carbon compounds that came out when the Earth had formed. So early on it would have had this quite different atmosphere than we have today. As the Earth cools off, we start to form other compounds. Methane, ammonia, carbon dioxide, water, all formed from the same basic set of elements. We had carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, and some oxygen. Not much oxygen in the atmosphere yet, but tied up in other compounds. If you take these together in different combinations, you form things like methane, which is carbon and which is carbon and hydrogen together combined. Ammonia is nitrogen and hydrogen. Carbon dioxide, carbon and oxygen. Or water, oxygen and hydrogen. So if you combine them in different ways, you start to form some very simple compounds. Nothing very complex at this point. Eventually more complicated materials will be able to form from this. And that's what we want to look at in terms of an experiment we want to see, we know this is what we believe the Earth's early atmosphere would have been like. So can we take this and then form any kind of organic compounds, any kind of living organisms? If we take this kind of, we can simulate, you know, nothing there is rare, right? We can make carbon, we can, make, we can have carbon, we have methane, ammonia, we can take all that stuff and experiment with it. 
we could try to subject it to the conditions that existed in the early Earth's atmosphere. What was the Earth like? What the temperatures might have been like? What the uh, weather conditions might have been like? And see what happens. So we can actually kind of simulate the early Earth's atmosphere. And that was done. An experiment here. Uh, excuse the typo, it's not 1930s, it's 1950s. And I meant to correct that and completely forgot to. But it should be 1950s. Uh, the Yuri Miller experiment essentially did that. It took all those gases that existed in the early Earth's atmosphere, put them together, the methane, the ammonia, carbon dioxide, water, heated them up, boiling water coming through, so it would have been really much hotter than it is today. Sparks. Why sparks? Well, lightning. You would have had lightning storms on the Earth at the time. So you would have had some kind of energy coming and the spark is to, you know, sparks to simulate the lightning that would have occurred. So essentially we're making a mini version of what the Earth might have been like four billion years ago, early after it had formed. So very easy elements, we can find those and we can, we can put them together very easily, condense the material out, condenser, cool it off, trap down here any compounds that formed in the little trap. And what you find is that you're able to make, not a living organism, you know, didn't create little single-celled creatures, they didn't create you know, anything like that, but they did create amino acids. If you've taken a biology class, amino acids are the building blocks of our DNA. So they're not living, they're called organic compounds because they're based on carbon, which is what our life is based on. But they're not living by any sense, but they're needed for living creatures. We need amino acids, that actually makes up the building blocks of us. And we find now that we could, we could create these based on the conditions that we believe were present in the early earth. That it would have been very easy to create amino acids. That still doesn't show us how we get from those amino acids to anything more complicated. But we're all still all talking about chemical reactions right now. So these are all chemical reactions, nothing biological as of yet. And trying to get from one to the other is something extremely difficult. You know, we've never been able to do this experiment again or again or again and make even the simplest single-celled creature. That's not something we've ever been able to do. But we were able to create amino acids. We've also found now that amino acids exist, exist elsewhere. You detect them in comets, out in dense molecular clouds out in space. So you don't even need all of these conditions. They actually form very easily. Again, does that mean life forms easily? Not necessarily. But the basic building blocks of it are out there. When we look at what we find on Earth in terms of biological evolution, you'll notice I'm skipping something there. How do we get from that, there, I, I have no clue. I don't, nobody does. Yeah. There's no clue, no, no scientific explanation to say how we got from other than slowly changing and eventually becoming you know, a living creature. It's very difficult to explain how we got from that stage of, of amino acids. We understand that to get to the very simplest creatures, algae, you know, very simple plants. But we see evidence of those on Earth three and a half billion years ago. Only a billion years after the Earth formed. The very earliest fossils that we can find are those of algae. So at some point in that time, between forming that primordial soup, so in the oceans you would have had all these carbon compounds, at some point was able to finally form more and more complex carbon compounds and eventually becoming a living uh, plant in this case, algae. Took three and a half billion years, or took a billion years to get there. In the next billion and a half years, it's a long, long time, right? We've been doing lots of long times, but a billion and a half years, we go from an algae to an amoeba. Amoeba is a pretty complex single-celled creature, but it's still just a single cell. Took a billion and a half years of evolution to go from that very basic algae, extremely simple creature, to a much more complicated one. It was another billion years before we got organisms that had more than one cell. So until about a billion, for the first three and a half billion years of the Earth's existence, we either had nothing, we had chemical compounds in the oceans, 
or we had single-celled organisms. Hasn't been to the last billion that we've actually had multiple-celled organisms. That doesn't mean us. You know, we're not quite up to that complicated yet. But even, uh, even ones with two and three and ten and a hundred cells, that's when we first begin to see them in the fossil record. It's been a long, it's t- it's a lo- it took a long time to get there. By comparison, you know, we've been around for 10,000 years. Very, very small portion of it. Yes, ma'am? No, no. There'd be other. The dating would be. It wouldn't be a similar process. Carbon dating requires a living organism. It requires trees and that, and it only works back, you know, ten thousands of years. It won't work back. There, there are other methods that are similar using other elements that are in the rocks. You can use. There's a strontium and uribidium. You know, the details don't matter. But there are other elements that we can use to decay to date how far back these go. Okay. So there are other. It's it's very similar to carbon dating. It's just carbon only works. It works real good for dating like a book, ancient books. You can do it real well. It wouldn't even work back this far because the carbon, the half-life of carbon is so short that after a billion years, it would all be gone. But it is a similar process that is used for that. So that's how we can, we can date those rocks that contain these, these objects. Now, so what do we know? Well. Let's, t- let's, let's go with our own bias now. What we know about life, the only life we know in the universe is based on carbon. Right? All life on Earth is based on carbon. There's no silicon rock creatures. You, know, you see them in the science fiction shows. There's no silicon rock creatures here on Earth that are living based on silicon. You know, they all depend on liquid water. You know, we don't use liquid ammonia or liquid methane or breathe, you know, breathe other gases. You know, again, to go back to the science fiction shows, they like to put that there, but we don't know of anything. Every life that we know, which maybe is because the only place we know that life exists is here on Earth, depends on carbon and needed liquid water. So if that's the case, where are we going to find life elsewhere in our solar system? It really narrows it down. Pretty much nowhere, but there are a couple places that have possibilities. Mars is one of them, and Mars is probably the most likely place if we're going to find life, are we ever going to find an intelligent civilization there? As you know, they'd write about 100 years. We'd know it by now. You know, we've had enough spacecraft, enough rovers there traveling around the different parts of the surface. We've mapped the whole thing carefully. If there had ever been a civilization there, we would know about it by now. So could there be you know, amoeba, single-celled creatures there? That's possible. Life, once it forms, as we see here on Earth, survives under incredible you know, Survives down in the Antarctic where it's incredibly bitterly cold. Survives down at the vents in the bottom of the ocean, you know, where it's very hot. You know, temperatures that would kill us. You know, we've got adapt, we've got life that can adapt to survive there. So, if life formed early on on Mars, could it still be there? And that's something that we've been looking for since the 1970s. Nothing conclusive. There's been some tests that seem to say, yeah, maybe there is. There's been other tests that say, no, it's just chemical reactions that we're seeing and not biological effects. It can be very difficult at the very simplest levels to separate the two. You know, a biological organism can process things, but you can have chemical reactions that go on that can be very similar. So, bless you. It can be very difficult to tell the difference. So, if we're going to look, Mars is our best bet. That's why we're still looking. We sent the Viking landers back in the 70s. They gave us some inconclusive results, but not enough that we're still sending the rovers today. They're still looking for signs of life. So we're still looking today. Mars is probably going to be our best chance. Next would be Europa. Europa, uh, we went through these pretty quickly in this class, but Europa is the moon of Jupiter. Second second major one out, and it's the one that has an liquid ocean beneath the surface. It's got more water on Europa than we have on the entire Earth. Wow, but we're the, we're, the, we're the water planet, right? We've got three quarters of our surface is covered by water. And that's the thing. Three quarters of our surface, that little tiny couple miles on the top, not the thousands of miles of rocks and metals that go down below it. Europa actually has a surface of ice, and then below that, heated up a liquid water ocean. So there actually is liquid water inside Europa, and could something have formed there? It's a possibility. Harder to tell, right? This isn't something on the surface we can go and sample. We're talking about things that are miles, hundreds of miles below this. You have to drill through hundreds of miles of ice. 
Yeah, not such a big deal, right? But we dig through, you know, our deep drills here on Earth go down, what, a mile, a couple miles? A mile or two, maybe? Trying to drill through 100 miles? Yeah, I think it's beyond our technology right now to get down there. Eventually, it might be something we can find out. Titan is the other one. Titan is the large moon of Saturn. It actually has an atmosphere. And could have, has actually a liquid on the surface. Actually has liquid on its surface. Liquid methane, not liquid water. But it does have ra- uh, lakes, rivers. It can rain methane. So it has a liquid cycle on that. You know, could there be something else on Titan? The difficulty with Titan is that the temperature is so cold. I mean, we're not talking, you know, winter temperatures here. We're not talking winter temperatures in Antarctica. You know, we're talking a couple hundred degrees, hundreds of degrees below zero. Really, really cold. But could life, if life forms there, could it survive and adapt? And it's quite a possibility. Um, the other uh, op- options, you know, we always like to talk about, I mentioned some of the science fiction shows, like to talk about, you know, life based on silicon instead of carbon. If you've taken a chemistry class at some point, you probably know you've looked at the periodic table, and if you look at the columns in the periodic table, the columns are, chemical, are elements that have similar chemical properties. So if you're looking for something that's similar to carbon, the next closest one is going to be silicon. It means they'll have similar chemical properties, make similar bonds, and maybe be able to create long chains much as the carbon does. Could you use a different type of liquid? Do you breathe a different type of, you use a different type of liquid? Could you use ammonia or methane? Could you breathe something different instead of oxygen? Could it be based on some other element? It's all speculation because we only have ourself as an example. The the problem is that silicon is less likely to form complex molecules. It's not as good at forming long, stable chains. Carbon is the best. It's got the tightest bonds. Being a smaller atom, it's able to bind a lot tighter and can make, instead of just two and three and four atoms, thousands of atoms bound together. So carbon is much better. Silicon, we have not seen it. We've never been able to reproduce anything like that. But it's still a possibility. Could we depend on things like liquid ammonia or methane? Well, you could use them, except if you've ever used liquid ammonia, liquid methane, or liquids at very cold temperatures. You know, not at temperatures that are comfortable to us. That also means that chemical reactions go very, very slow. Right? The more you heat something up, the faster the reactions are going to go. The colder it is, the slower things are going to happen. As a comparison, although it's not a chemical reaction, but a similar is if you ever you drink tea. Right? Put, put, try putting sugar in iced tea, try putting sugar in hot tea. Which one's going to dissolve quicker? It's not a chemical reaction. You're really just taking apart the sugar molecules, but it's the same idea. Put it in hot tea, the sugar dissolves immediately. Put it in iced tea, you've got to stir and stir. It slowly dissolves. It will occur, but the same thing would likely happen here. That if you're based on this, we think that the chemical reactions would go much slower than they otherwise would. So why does that matter? Well, remember how long it took us to form life here on Earth? Took billions of years. So how long is it going to take if it's if it's occurring like this elsewhere? All right. So what we want to look at, and this is going to be our lab for the day as well, is the Drake equation. For all the people who love math so much, this is the equation in a non-mathematical form, sort of looking at it as in a box. But the whole idea of the Drake equation is that you put these uh, six, seven seven factors together. All you got to do is multiply them all together. You figure out what each value is, and you find out exactly how many intelligent civilizations are in this galaxy right now. So that's what we're going to do for lab. We're going to calculate how many intelligent civilizations there are in the galaxy. And we'll find out that it can range from one, there's us, to millions, depending on the values that you put in, because we don't know them all. Some of them we know pretty well, and that's what we're going to go over in the coming slides. I'm going to kind of go through a little bit about each one. But this is looking at how we're doing that, how we're doing the equation. You take this big giant box, that's all the stars that exist in the Milky Way galaxy. So you start out with all of those. You figure out what fraction of them have planets. Is it a big chunk? Is it a small chunk? And you cut off those because if you don't have any planets, are you going to have life? 
No, you need a planet to start off with. Planet, a moon, you need something orbiting that to have life. So if you eliminate the planets, if the, all these stars don't have planets, then you're just stuck looking at these. How many of them are habitable? Okay, how many can, can, are in the point, and we use this, we use our own bias of water, we say how many are capable of having liquid water on their surface? Jupiter would not be. Mercury would not be. They're too, too close, too far away from the sun. However, something like, you know, the Earth would, Mars did at some point, maybe Venus did at some point very early on, could have had water on its surface. So, you know, where, which, which, how many planets do you get that are habitable? Those are astronomical terms, and we can figure those out pretty easily. When it gets to these last three, it gets really tough. How often does life form? I have no clue. Is it all the time? Does every planet that is habitable form life? It's possible. Or is it one in a billion or one in a trillion? You know, are we the oddball or are we the norm? I can't tell you. So we're going to look at these numbers in detail. And then they go on to talk about intelligence. Right? You know, we can't communicate with the planet of the amoeba out there from Earth. Right? Send them all the signals they want. We're not going to be able to do that. And we need a culture. They need some kind of technological culture. We can't communicate with one that is, you know, in the 18th century, technologically compared to us. We can send them all the messages we want. They're not going to reply. They won't have any clue that we're even sending them signals. So we're going to look at all of those terms. I'm going to show you the Drake equation again. This is how it is in more, a little more mathematical form, but it's nice and easy to do in that it doesn't involve tangents, it doesn't, like we had to do with the, that, the one, it doesn't involve logarithms, we did with one of the others, it doesn't involve raising anything to a power, it doesn't involve dividing anything, all it is is multiplication. So we figure out what each of these values is, which is what we're going to look at over the coming slides, and we multiply them. So you get seven numbers in there, multiply them all together, and it tells you exactly how many communicative civilizations there are in the galaxy right now. So I'm going to give you something similar to that in the, in the lab, uh, broken down a little bit. So let's look at each of those numbers in turn. First of all, the rate of star formation. We know that pretty well. About 10 stars per year. That's average. That's about how many stars we have in the galaxy. We know how, eight, how old it is. On average, we had to form about 10 stars in a year to have the galaxy the way it is. So one number we know real good. Is it 9? Maybe. Is it 11? It's pretty close, though, compared to what we know for the other ones we're going to see. How many of the stars have planetary systems of some kind or another? Well, right now we've detected 1,800 and some planets outside of our solar system. The number keeps growing. You know, I ha I ha there's, a little, there's an app you can do for exoplanets that you can download and it'll send you an update every time a new planet is discovered. So, you know, 1,800 and some now that have been discovered. There's a lot of planets out there. We're just starting the technology that's able to detect those. So, could we detect all of them? No, there's still lots that we couldn't. If we're already detecting thousands of them in just the last 20 years or so, there's got to be a lot more out there. So, what we think is that most of these star systems pretty much form planets. That it's a natural part of forming a star is to form a planetary system as well. So let's be very optimistic and give it a value of 1. Pretty close to 1. We're just going to say 1 for our purposes right now. Meaning that what we're saying is that every single star is going to have a planetary system of one kind or another. Be very, optim be very optimistic, uh, be very, very optimistic, and you'll find that in my initial numbers here, we're going to be pretty optimistic. We're going to kind of zip through and say that everything is very, very likely and see what we end up with. So, value of one for here. Now, the next thing that we have to look at is the stars that are, ha the planets that are going to be habitable. Because you can form them, and if you form a star with three Jupiters real far away, there's no habitable planets. You can throw that one out. There's not going to be life. So, what we're going to look at is the different types of stars. And that, what type of stars are going to be likely to have habitable planets? Well, you remember back all OBAFGKM, right? Real hot stars were O's, B's, then A's, F's, G's were the sun-like stars, K and M were the smaller stars. What we do is we try to throw out a lot of stars. We're going to throw out the hottest stars. 
If you remember those O stars lasted a couple million years? It took a billion years to form a, an, an algae here on Earth. <coughs> so if the star, even if it has a real big zone because it's so hot, it's got a big area where water can exist. If the star is gone after 10 million years, we're not going to get to billions to form life. So we can throw those stars out. We don't need to consider those. So O's, B's, even a lot of the A stars get thrown out just because they don't live long enough. The M-type stars live forever. right? There's M-type stars that none of them have ever died yet. They're every single one that's ever formed is still here because they have lifetimes of trillions of years sometimes. Got a good chance for a you know, real big civilization to develop around one of them. The problem with them is that this is showing the habitable zone. How much of that is habitable? Around a G star, it's a pretty good area with Venus just on the inside and Mars just on the outside and Earth in the middle here. That little circle is the habitable zone. You've got to be right in the right spot around that star. And you've got to be really, really close to it. So you could do it, but you can probably throw out a lot of those stars because it's going to be very easy to have stars and planets fall outside of that exact range that you'd need. Would there be some? Yeah, you'd be throwing out some stars that are possible for life. The other difficulty with that is that you're so close to the star that things like solar flares become much more important, much more devastating. So it might be too hard with the radiation of those, might just make it too hard for life to form. So we tend to throw out the coolest stars here just because you can't get, it's hard to get a planet right in that exact range. And the hottest stars just because they don't live long enough. In addition, we have to look at where we are in the galaxy. We can throw out some stars just because of where they are in the galaxy. Remember we got that 4 million solar mass black hole there, lots of radiation. The radiation, if you go in towards the center, it's just too intense. You're probably not going to be able to form any kind of life real close to the center of our galaxy. If you go too far out, similarly, you're not going to have anything, right? Where did everything that comes that makes us up? Supernovae. There's lots of stars here to go supernova and spread heavy elements, anything other than hydrogen or helium, back out into the galaxy. Here, <coughs> excuse me, there's just not enough heavy elements. So you could form stars, they could form planets, those planets could be in a habitable zone, but if they're made up of mostly hydrogen and helium, it's not going to be made up the elements that we need. So we can eliminate some areas that we think are going to have too high radiation and some that are going to be too, too far away and not have enough heavy elements. Last on this, still working on this one, this one factor, Pl uh, planets in binary systems. Lots of stars are binary. Bless you. Lots of stars are in binary systems. It's very difficult to put a stable orbit in a binary system. You can go real close to one star, or you can go real far away around both of them. Well, that's going to be awfully hot. That's going to be awfully cool. You can get some cool orbits that are stable. How'd you like to live on that planet? Right? Now, there's one for a science fiction story, right? You're right in here. It's nice and warm. Sun never sets. Well, one sun sets and the other one rises. You know, so you'd have daylight all the time. No matter where you are on the planet, you're constantly immersed in daylight right there. Of course, over here it would be awful cold because you're far away from both of them. So you get much more extremes. So you could get some stable orbits, but not very easily. So what we're going to estimate is to say that maybe in every 10 planetary systems, so for every 10 stars that we're looking at, one planet will be in a habitable zone. Probably maybe still being a little optimistic because we're throwing out. We threw out a lot of those. We threw out all those stars too close to the center of the galaxy. Throw all of them too far out. Throw all the hot stars out. All the cold stars out. So maybe about 1 in 10 will have a planetary system around it. Or one habitable planet. If they all have planetary systems, 1 in 10 will have a habitable planet at least. Maybe some will have more than one habitable planet. And maybe some will have none. But that's, our, that's going to be our estimation for that. So that gives us the first three terms. Those are the ones we know pretty well. We got a pretty good thing. You might argue that that, you might want to say, well, maybe it should be one in a hundred, or someone else might say maybe it's one in two. You could vary on it a little bit and even a lot wider than we do now. But we've got a pretty good handle on that compared to what I'm going to tell you in a minute. So 
Let's look at the last of these. How about, now we've got all these habitable planets out there, many millions and billions of them. How many of them does life actually arise? Well, maybe a lot, maybe none, maybe hardly any. No. Uh, experiments, we looked at the Miller-Urey experiment. Yeah, you could form the basic building blocks of life, but we have no way to say how do we go from that soup that we make that has all those carbon compounds in it to even a simple living organism. So that, that says it's quite likely itself that you're creating these amino acids very easily, but we don't know how to make that jump. We can't take that soup here on Earth and create a you know, an, an, an amoeba, an algae, anything even very simple. So, how many does life actually arise? Well, it's got a big range. You could say it's one. Saying it's one means if you put a planet in the habitable zone, life forms. That's what we're going to assume. We're going to be real optimistic. We're going to go, you know, going to go full out optimistic on this and see what comes out. So, we'll say it's one. That means every single one. If you said it's one in a million or one in a billion, can I tell you you're wrong? Not really. It might be one in a million or one in a billion where the life actually forms. You could have all these habitable planets out there without any kind of living organisms on them. But what we're going to do throughout this section, the next last couple, is give everything very optimistic values. Next one, again, gets hard to judge. How many of these do we, does intelligence arise? Well, we don't have anything here. We know of one planet where life originated. It became intelligent. Is that the norm? Do they all do that? That's what we're going to assume. We're going to say, yeah. Planet forms life, it's going to naturally evolve towards intelligence. Does that mean not? Does that mean you're going to form lots of planets that are, have amoeba or you know, other types of plants or very simple animals and that's it? Yes, sir? Well, are we intelligent in life? That could be debated too sometimes. <laughs> I was going to yeah, say, by intelligence, do you mean like able to feed and reproduce? And, or do you mean like. Well, that would still be basic life. I mean, intelligence in terms of what we consider ourselves, you know, as a civilization, being able to build and record and that kind of stuff. We're not into communication yet. We're not talking yet about communication. That's going to be the next, next step. But we're saying that you know, we're going towards intelligence. You know, could it be dolphins' intelligence? You know, that could be an intelligent form of life, too. They'd be tough to communicate with over the distance. You know, how m are the dolphins going to be able to build radio telescopes? Well, you know, they might be there. They might be as intelligent as we are, or more so. But that doesn't mean we can communicate with them very easily. But for what we're going to say, we're going to say optimistic. We're going to say one. Now here's, here's, here's where the dolphins come in. How many of them develop and use technology? Well. You could have the planet of the dolphins. They're all extremely intelligent, you know, a lot more so necessary perhaps than we are, but they might not develop the technology that they need just by the nature of how they form. They might not develop the type of technology that is used to uh, communicate. By technology, we mean you know, radio communication essentially. So not just any technology, not building you know, very simple things. We're looking at actually what we'd consider modern technology in the last stuff we've had for the last hundred years. Again, it's a guess. Is it every single one? Do they always develop and use technology? Are there lots of planets like the dolphin one out there? You know, where there might be intelligent life, but they don't communicate. Again, for what we're looking at, there's no way to communicate with that one. So again, we're being completely optimistic on this. We're going to say uh, a one. That I mean, it makes sense to us that if you develop uh, intelligent life, will eventually develop technology. I mean, it makes sense, but that's because we're going by the only example that we have, which is us here on Earth. All right. So we put all of these together, and what do we get? Well, we did them purposefully. 10 times 1 times 1 tenth times 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1. We're not done yet though, there's still one term. So we're not saying there's just one, we're not saying it's just us. We're saying that how many technological civilizations right now in our galaxy is equal to their lifetime? How long does it live on the average? Now that's even harder to figure out. 
how do we figure out how many, how long an, a, 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 the average lifetime of a technological civilization is? Well, normally to figure out the average of anything, we look at a hundred different ones or a thousand and we average them together. This one lived ten years, this one lived a thousand, and you put them all together, right? You know, what's the average lifespan of a human? Well, you look at how average, on the average, how long a human lives and you put it together. We only have one civilization and we don't even know how long we'll last. We've been, around, we've, been, we've been an intelligent technological civilization for about 100 years. So if it's 100, then there might be 100 civilizations in the galaxy. So that's what we've been. We've been intelligent and technological for about 100 years. How long will it last? Who knows? If it's a million years, maybe you'll have a million civilizations out there right now. Or did we last a long time? Are we already you know, on the long end of how long a civilization lasts? Radio technology was really developed in what, the 1920s? Got started, picked up with radio telescopes in the 1930s. 1930s, 1940s, we're starting to work on nuclear power, nuclear energy, nuclear weapons. Do most civilizations destroy themselves 20 or 30 years? Do they only last 20 or 30 years? Are we the unusual one that lasted this long? Or are we just getting started? Will we be here 1,000 years from now? 10,000, 100,000 years? We don't even have one. This, the other ones we at least had statistics of one. Now we have statistics of zero. We don't know how long we've lasted. We know how long we've lasted so far, but we don't have any idea of how long that will be. The other thing that we've done so far is we've really been very optimistic. If we change that one on one of those to life forming to one in a million, the number of civilizations drops like a stone. All of a sudden you change, and you could put one in a million times one in a million times one in a million, all of a sudden, you know, we're here alone. So very, very difficult to get because we don't know those numbers. And what I'm going to give you for the lab is looking at a couple, a couple of those. Now let me, there's a couple other things I wanted to go because I want to make sure I cover a couple of things for the, for the exam. So let me just put a couple other things up there for you. Uh, this is the one where we go all optimistic. We've gone so optimistic that we've gone a million years. We're going to be here for a million years. That means that there's a million civilizations in our galaxy. We're not even close to being alone. Considering how big our galaxy is, that means they're about a hundred light years apart. So if we want to send hello to the nearest civilization, we send it this year, 2014. They get it in 2114. If they reply back immediately, we'd get the answer in 2214. It takes 200 years to say hi that we're here. Not something, even if, they're that, even if there are that many, there's not necessarily going to be anything close. And that was going with really optimistic numbers. Now if they last more than that, you could say they last a billion years, then they'd be even closer. Then there'd be stuff you know, right next to us. Almost every civilization would be there. But it's going to take a long time to communicate. Even if Alpha Centauri has life, we send them a signal now. End of 2014, takes a little over four years to get there, so early 2019 they're getting the answer. Mid-2023 we get a response. Takes almost nine years, not quite nine years to get a response back if we were to send a, send a signal there. So communication is also a problem. Until we can develop something you know, that travels faster than light so that we can get to Alpha Centauri, either communicate or get there in you know, less than it takes light to travel, unless there's some way to do that, it's going to be very, very difficult to communicate with any of these civilizations. It's, kind of, it's really talking with a big time lag because you're waiting and waiting for that response and it's not something that's going to come quickly. Alright, I think that finishes up Drake. Were there any questions on... I have a couple other slides I'm going to show you and then I can do the quiz. We're going to go a little bit later, but the, the lab is a relatively short lab today, so it's a relatively quick, easy one. So. Questions? Questions? I have a couple other slides I want to show you because there are a couple other things that will probably come up on the final, so I want to make sure I show you the, show you the slides of them. No? Okay. Let me go ahead here. Uh, that's the Pioneer spacecraft. I'm not, I won't be asking you about that. That's just one of the plaques that we sent out to sort of send some um, some of our knowledge out to, out into interstellar space. So this is one that was sent to the Pioneer spacecraft with human figures next to the size of the craft. This, the little googly eyes up here, that's the hydrogen, that's a hydrogen atom. That's showing this flipping of the spin of the electron. So trying to give something that, something that another intelligent species may be able to 
figure out. There's where we are in our solar system. There's where it came from. This little starburst here is a whole bunch of different pulsars. Something that maybe another intelligent civilization would have been able to map and figure out how far they are away from the Earth. Essentially, we've given them exactly where we are. Told them exactly. If they can use that, they can then find out where we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, I wanted to show you that. I wanted to talk about this for a second, the water hole. The water hole is where we look for these signals. It's where we look for signals from space. It's where you broadcast. It's right in this area between hydrogen and hydroxyl emissions. Put H and OH together, you get H2O, water. So that's the water hole. We look here because this is the lowest noise in the background. So if we're trying to listen or broadcast, this is the very lowest noise. So if you're trying to talk to someone and you've got a radio blaring, you know, you've got to talk over the noise. You have to send louder signals. If you have a very low noise, it's much easier to hear someone. When you get here, you get a very high, the atmosphere and the cosmic background get very high. So there's a lot of noise over here. When you get over here, our galaxy has a lot of noise. So it goes up on either side, but really, so where we try to look is the water hole. So again, you'll probably see that come up next Wednesday. So I wanted to make sure you'd seen that. That's where the lowest noise portion is of the, of the spectrum. So I wanted to make sure I'd shown you that one as well. Um, let me see. I'm trying to think if there's anything else there. I know I have a couple other slides in there. I cut out a few of them that I'm not as, not as, uh, don't consider quite as, as important. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. So I'll know where I stopped if I had any, I don't think I had anything else on there other than the review and maybe one or two, one or two other quick slides that I'm going to just stop for now. We made it. If I hadn't missed one day, we'd have done even better. I wouldn't have been quite so rushed today. Would have done a little bit better, but. It also threw us behind in lab. I forgot to mention, um, everybody got 40 free lab points. I knew there were going to be a couple extra, but because of Thanksgiving missing a lab and because of the day I missed missing a lab, everybody got 40 out of, a 40 out of 40 lab that I put in this morning. So that will, it won't, won't make a big difference. It's not 40 extra credit points, but it is 40 points that will add into your grade as full credit. So I did put that in there this morning as well. All righty, let me.